Good to see you guys again. Time flies so fast, it's Sunday again. To those of you who are not familiar, we are in the series of the book of Joshua. And we are on the last three chapters of this book. We started this January of this year, and now we're about to finish. And I'm very excited that we're finishing this up. We still have another month of August where we will still do the two more chapters, 23 and 24. But on the third and fourth Sunday of August, we will do the book of Judges, just a couple of chapters, so that we can have a sense of continuity. And then come September, we will do the book of Revelation. By the way, we have a poll in Facebook where you can check out which one you like um, to, to have our series on. We put in there the book of Judges, uh, the book of Psalms, and the book of Revelation. It seemed like the book of Revelation has lots of um, uh, votes. So we're going to do the book of Revelation. If you are unfamiliar with the book of Revelation, uh, we're, we're going to talk about things like um, Antichrist, Armageddon, Tribulation, uh, Millennium, uh, all these things. And this very interesting number, 666, it's in the book of Revelation. So these things we would like to talk about. And as we prepare, you know, some people get excited when they know that we're going to talk about Revelation. As we prepare on this, uh, we're, we're going to be aware of the spiritual world that we are in right now. The devil, the enemy, uh, two extremes. One, the enemy doesn't want us to know about them. And so the other extreme, though, is... Uh, an unhealthy obsession of knowing these things. So some Christians get too much obsessed with the spiritual world. We want to stay in the middle. We want to be informed as we want to be encouraged as well. So that's going to be in the month of September. But today, we would like to continue this 22nd chapter of the book of Joshua. This is one of the most complex chapters in the book of Joshua because it talks about the will of God. Now, uh, talking about the will of God, um, the chapter begins with a congratulation. It climaxes in the middle with an almost all-out civil war among the Israelites, and then it ends up with a reconciliation, an affirmation of brotherhood. This is the book of Joshua chapter 22. Um, but if we look a little bit deeper in this chapter, what we will find it's an issue of God's will. The implication of settling less than the will of God. Now, let me pose this question to you. Have you ever considered what the will of God is in your life? Have you made um, a major decision in life, a life-altering decision in life? Perhaps it has to do with your marriage partner. It has to do with your career. It has to do with an investment in the future or anything major that you decided on and you're asking, what's the will of God? Is this the will of God for my life? Chapter 22 talks about the will of God. Now, let's, let's make it easier. Say there's a circle and everything that's in the circle is the will of God. Everything that is outside the circle is not the will of God. It's easy, right? Are you following me? All right, let me do it again, because this is very important. We're talking about the will of God. What's the will of God? So there's a circle, 
an imaginary circle. Everything that's in the circle is the will of God. Everything outside the circle is not the will of God. Have you ever made any decision in life, major decision in life, that you know or probably you're not sure if this is inside the will of God or outside the will of God? Or maybe you're sure that this is not really inside but not really outside, it's at the edge of the will of God. Which is it? What's the will of God in my life? So let's take, for example, one of the most popular and favorite verse in the Bible that I know that you have, Jeremiah 29, 11. Whose favorite is Jeremiah 29, 11? Cool. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Now let me pause from that. Now, we know from last week that this is not God's promise for us. This is God's promise for the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon. But what we can see here, if we tie it up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God's breath and is profitable for teaching. So what can we learn from Jeremiah 29, 11 is that God has a plan. This is a sort of God who is wise, who is good, who is just, and he has a plan for us. And we can carry it all throughout the New Testament that this God is still the same. Same God has a plan. He has a plan for us. But what is this plan for us? I think the reason why many people pay top dollars to fortune tellers is because they want to know their future. Have anyone been to fortune tellers lately? No? Just me. <laughs> now, it's different from us. We already know God's plan for us. That's why we don't go to fortune tellers anymore. We know God's plan for us. We know what he wants us to do because it's all written in the Bible. What are those things? See, for the Israelites, the whole way of life was written in the Old Testament, and they know the will of God. They know from the things that they eat, what they cannot eat, what they can eat, what they can wear, what they cannot wear, how they worship, when to worship, what to worship. It's all written in the Bible for them, so it's easy for them to ask this, what's the will of God? It's written in the Bible. But what about us, Christians? What is the will of God for us? I would say it's the same thing. It's in the Bible. I think our issue is that we want to know the specifics of the will of God to our specific situation. So we ask, how do we know God's will? How can we make sure that we stay inside the circle of God's will? Now, to the people of Israel, it was very clear what God wants. God wants specific things. So consider the Ten Commandments. The first four commands has something to do with who is God, how do we worship God, how not to worship God, and when do we worship God. There's only one God. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. You cannot worship idols on the Sabbath day. Four things immediately. You know exactly what God wants. See, the last six other commandments has something to do with how we treat each other. Do not murder. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet your neighbor's property and his wife altogether. So we know exactly what God wants. If you read the New, the New Testament, Jesus have told us a lot of commandments and specifically summed up the commandments into love God the Lord your God with all of your heart, not half heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. How do we love my, your neighbor? As you love yourself. See, this is easy. But down to the particulars, 
It's not that easy. Now, the thing is this. It's very clear to the Israelites about the will of God. It's also clear to the Israelites that the promised land has boundaries to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. It has boundaries. And in fact, the Jordan River to the east is the boundary of the promised land. See, God did not promise to Israel all the world. God only promised Israel a, a very small piece of land, no bigger than the New Jersey. It has boundaries on it. So you can say safely that the will of God has boundaries. There are clear demarcations to the will of God. But listen to chapter 22, verses 1 to 3. So let me start with this one. It says, At that time Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. Very clear. They know the will of God. They have obeyed. Verse 3, it says, You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. Now, what's happening here? Now, these two and a half tribes, tribe of Reuben, God, and Manasseh. Now, back in Numbers chapter 32, before when Moses was still alive, before they even crossed the Jordan River to enter the promised land, they were on the east side of the promised land. They're about to cross. Now, the three tribes thought for themselves, this land is good. We don't want to cross over to the promised land. Why don't you, Moses, give us this property and we want to stay here? See, the promised land is described way, way, way before as a land flowing with milk and money. Oh, honey, that's good. Milk and honey, okay? So they knew that this land is a fertile land, land that is really lush. Lush, I think about lush, I think about the garden of Pastor Joseph. You go to the back of his house, mangoes, avocados, atis, you name it. He has lots. So I'm thinking, ah, well, this is lush. So the tribes of Reuben, God, and Manasseh, when they were outside the promised land, just at the border of the promised land, they thought of themselves, we want this land. So Moses, give us this land. We want to stay here. And Moses agreed. Now, even though they know this is not part of God's plan, this is not part of the promised land, they want to stay there. But the only caveat is that they will have to help their brothers to drive out the enemies when they enter the land. So they did. So Joshua 22 is like a parting congratulations to the two and a half tribes saying, you have done your part, you know God's will, you have obeyed God's will, now you can go back to your land, which is outside the promised land. So this very idea is that it's outside the promised land. Now, their decision is rather controversial. Because in verse 5, Joshua dismissed them by saying, Only be careful to observe the commandment of the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Why is Joshua telling the two and a half tribes about this? It's because they are going outside the promised land. And there's, and there's a possibility, a tendency, that they might forget. I mean, it's easy, even in fact, in the wilderness, when they were 
they have the tabernacle, they have the throne of God, they easily forget. How much more when you are outside the promised land? So Joshua is telling them, this is easy, but you have to be very careful and not forget. You know, Joshua will repeat this exhortation in chapter 24. But at this point, he's telling them and dismissing them by telling them, you have to be very, very careful. And you have, cannot forget the commandment of the Lord. Now, could God have made it less clear about the boundaries of the promised land, which is God's will and which is not? No, the answer is no. Listen to Numbers chapter 34. This is way before Moses when they were still about to cross. Numbers 34 verse 10, it says, You shall draw a line for your eastern border from Hazar Enan to Shepham, and the border shall go down from Shepham to Ribla on the east side of Ain, and the border shall go down and reach the shoulder of the Sea of Chinereth, or Sea of Galilee, on the east. And the border shall go down to Jordan, and its limit shall be the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. This shall be your land as defined by its borders all around. Let me show you the map. Now, the map shows that on the west side is the Mediterranean Sea. And then on the east side, you can see a, a, a long uh, line. It's the Jordan River at the very middle. And then to the very east is the Jordan Valley or Amman, Jordan. Uh, Marilyn Altwal and uh, Abdallah is now in Jordan. That's their place, Jordan. See, originally God's plan and what he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and the Israelites, Jordan is never part of it. Their eastern boundary is the Jordan River. So what we're saying is that only from, from that side, the west, that is Mediterranean Sea, all the way to the Jordan River, that's the only promise of God. And yet, the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, chose what is outside of the promised land. This is the whole point of this. Now, God was very clear that His will has boundaries. You cannot confuse this. There are boundaries. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, God has designed everything in details that's so that there's no confusion. He has designed the way of worship, when to worship. There are festivals that you can worship. You cannot just offer animals that's not approved by God. You cannot offer snakes or vultures or dogs. You cannot. There are only certain animals that you can worship, uh, offer. And there are certain age of animals that you can offer. There are certain dress codes when you go to worship God. See, God is a God of order. And this is not by mistake. This is by design. So... What I'm saying is that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh cannot say that we don't know. We know there's a boundary to it, and yet they chose to stay out of the boundary. That's the idea here. Now, you may ask why. Why would they not want to go inside? If they know that inside is the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the answer. Numbers 32, let me show you why. Now, the people of Reuben and the people of God had a very great number of livestock. Now, this is very interesting. See, in the wilderness for 40 years, they were there. And yet, for whatever reason, God has blessed them. And now, before entering the promised land, they already have a great livestock. This is surprising. And then it says, and they saw 
the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for a livestock. Amazing. What they're saying is that this is a place that is lush. It's like, you know, I, I cannot help but recall Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The, the tribes of the two and a half tribes are looking at the land beyond the Jordan, outside of the promised land, to be a lush place for their livestock. Now, this, this sounds familiar, does it? Now, way back in the book of Genesis, Abraham and Lot. Are you familiar? Abraham and Lot? Cool. Now, Abraham is their patriarch, and Lot was his nephew. Now, way before they were in the land of promise, and God has blessed Abraham and Lot, and their livestock also grew. To the point that their servants started fighting because they were fighting over water and grazing space. So Abraham, to avoid escalating the problem, made the deal with Lot and told him that if you go east, I'll go west. If you go north, I'll go south. Let us separate or else our servants will fight. And very interestingly, Lot did something very controversial. Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. It says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Now, this is not the first time that this Jordan Valley is seen to be lush. Even Lot saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord. Wait, Garden of the Lord? Isn't this Eden? Yes, this is Eden. The Garden of the Lord, it's lush. And it says, like the land of Egypt. Now, contrary to popular belief, uh, the land of Egypt is not all desert and sand. There are lush places in, in Egypt. And it says, in the direction of Zoar. And then there's a, an open and closed parenthesis. It says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Does it ring a bell? Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah are the cities where people, the men, want to have sex with men, and women want to have sex with women. God destroyed this place. We all know that. It says, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, thus they separated from each other. Now, very interesting. The only consideration of Lot is because this place is lush. It doesn't matter if it's near Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't matter if he will be compromised later on, which he was. He was compromised. It doesn't matter as long as practically it will help his business grow. See, the problem with the two and a half tribes of Reuben, God, and Manasseh is that they're not thinking about anything, but they're thinking that this is practical, this will help us. It doesn't matter if this is outside the promised land, outside God's will, what matters is that we need this place. Now, what's interesting here is when Moses was writing the book of Numbers, when he wrote, like the garden of the Lord, he wants us to think about the garden of the Lord. And what happened in the Garden of the Lord? Adam and Eve. Now, again, God is a God who plans. He designs. It's not, it's not an accident. So in the Garden of the Lord, he put a couple, Adam and Eve. And they told Adam and Eve, so that there's no confusion, he placed the trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve, you cannot eat from this fruit. So that there's no mistake, it's in the middle of the garden. 
when you see it, you know it's a forbidden tree. You know that. But Adam and Eve were smart enough, so one day they decided to stroll in the middle of the garden. I mean, they could have gone to other place, but they went there in the middle of the garden. Why? Maybe curiosity. See, this is the problem with kids. Kids are a little bit stupid. They're curious, and sometimes they get into accidents because of curiosity. Adam and Eve at this point were curious. They want to know, why is it? What's so special about this tree? Why is God forbidding us to eat from this tree? God was very clear. You cannot eat, and yet they went there. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it's the same thing with Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, when they saw that the land was good. The same thing with Lot. He lifted his eyes and saw that the land was good. Same thing with the woman, when he saw that the tree was good for food. Then it was delight to his eyes. Now, I understand. Temptation is really hard to resist. When you are in the outlet and the Louis Vuitton is 70% on sale, it's like, come on. Right, ladies? No. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's hard to resist. 70% off? It's like, Eve here is like, come on, this is to be desired. It says that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, the two and a half tribes are like Eve. She saw it was good. Even beforehand, he, she knew that it was forbidden. Even beforehand, the two and a half tribes knew it's not part of God's will. Lot knew that he will be separated from Abraham. Lot knew that it's adjacent to the Sodom and Gomorrah. The only consideration is it's good for food, for the eyes. Didn't John say that everything that's in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? It's temptation. I mean, it's so hard to resist temptation, but I mean, it's all there. Now, we can argue, we can argue that to the tribes of Reuben, God, and Manasseh, it's not altogether wrong, entirely wrong, to be outside of the promised land. I mean, God did not say, you are forbidden to stay outside the promised land. Only God is saying, you have to, because I promised your forefathers, you stay inside. There's no prohibition in the Bible that says you cannot stay outside of the promised land. So it's not entirely wrong, but it's not entirely right either. Because God has designed them to live inside the promised land. So maybe to Eve, it's not entirely wrong to stroll around the tree. What is wrong is to eat from the fruit of the tree. You know, there's a gray area in there. So for Lot, it's not entirely wrong to have his property... Near the Sodom and Gomorrah, what's wrong is to compromise with the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And sometimes we play with fire because we are in that border where we say, it's not entirely wrong, but you see, it's not entirely correct either. Apostle Paul had the same problem with the Gentile converts during their time. So the Gentile converts, especially in, in Corinth, are people who worship idols before. And then when they can get converted, they stop worshiping idols. The problem is that when meat are slaughtered and placed in the market, and when the people sell the meat in the market, those meat 
are offered to idols. So there's a controversy about meat offered to idols. So these gentle converts, they, they understand. But you see, in Colossians chapter 2, if you look further, Apostle Paul would say, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking and clothing. You can actually eat. Okay? So it's not prohibited anymore. Jesus would say that what really makes you sinful is not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out of your heart. That's very clear. So to the Gentile converts, you know, we're free. We can eat whatever we want. But then the Jewish converts who have not been practicing eating food, sacrificed to idols, are offended when they see the Gentile converts eat food sacrificed to idols. Now here's the dilemma. The gentle converts have friends and relatives. They get invited to parties. In the parties, they cannot choose, is this sacrifice to idols? Is this not sacrifice to idols? You know, it's so hard. So out of courtesy, they will eat without asking. And the Jewish converts are offended. And so Paul would say, in principle, in Corinthians, he would say, everything is permissible, but not everything is Beneficial. You can eat whatever you want because the Bible does not prohibit, but it doesn't mean that it's beneficial. Lechon is yummy, but if you have gout, some food are yummy, but if you have arthritis, it elevates cholesterol. I mean, everything is permissible, but not beneficial. So some Christians would think, see, this is not actually prohibited by God, but, you know, this borderline, that's what I'm saying. The Reuben, the tribes of Reuben, God, and Manasseh are in the borderline. They're outside the will of God, the promised land, and they knew about it. What Paul is saying to the Gentile converts is that those of you who understand should put restraint. I know that your freedom is on the line, but for the sake of those weaker brothers, please consider love. Consider not eating so that you don't get to offend anyone. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had any major decision in life where you know for a fact that what you have decided is not entirely wrong, but it's also not entirely the will of God either? Yes? Okay. Now, I'm, I'm sure we have done that. Now, either we don't know any better during the time that we were making a decision or that we're just playing Mavericks, and by Mavericks, we're playing Rebellious. Now, I understand that the world is not black and white. It's, it's very hard to pinpoint black and white, but there are certain boundaries to everything like the promised land. And here's the principle. The more we choose what is outside God's will, the more complex our lives will become. The more we stay inside the promised land, the God's will, the more easy our life will become. And I guess for some, Staying outside, just in the border, is where the fun begins. You see, life is already complicated. So right off the bat, the two and a half tribes were dismissed. And right after they were dismissed, the Bible said this, Joshua 22, verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan that's in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben, people of God, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the east side that belongs to the people of Israel. 
Here's the thing. When the people heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. What's happening here? Now, what's exactly happening here is that when Moses was still alive, there was a commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 12 and 13 that says, they cannot worship God anywhere else except where the tabernacle is. There's no other legitimate place of worship. They cannot build any more altars to offer sacrifices. It's like saying, if you go home, you cannot build an altar in your house. You cannot worship God in there. Only in this place. Only in this tabernacle. Now, it's very clear to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 13. But these two and a half tribes started building a temple of an imposing size. What it means is that they're trying to do something in the whole nation of Israelites. The other nine and a half tribes heard about it and they started to make war. Why? Because they knew from their experience that when the whole Israelites fail to follow God, disaster will come. The wrath of God will come. So, they sent a delegate led by a guy named Phinehas. You remember Phinehas? Yes? Phinehas is a guy who is he's very zealous. He's the son of Eleazar. Eleazar was the next priest after Aaron. This guy is, this guy is menacing. Let me tell you about this guy. So there was a time in, in the wilderness when God said, do not intermarry. And some of the Israelite men began to get other women from the other tribes, the Midianites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites. They brought them to the camp. And there was a plague in the camp of the Israelites. And there's this one wise guy, one Israelite guy who wise enough to bring a Midianite woman in front of everybody. It's like saying, bragging. Now, I have a wife now. She's a Midianite. And there's nothing you can do about it. He brought this Midianite woman in his tent to consummate their marriage. And Phineas, it did not sit well with him. So he followed this couple with a spear in his hand. And when he reached the tent, he went inside the tent and barbecued both of them. This is Phineas. Now, Phineas is heading the delegation. He went to the other side of Jordan. He talked to the two and a half tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And he said, the whole congregation of Israel, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Because there's no other explanation other than rebellion. To build another altar is to build another altar for another God. There's no other explanation but rebellion. It's a breach of faith. What he said is actually a mouthful. Let me translate what he said to you. What the hell are you doing, guys? That's what he's saying in a very strange language. This is uh, Indai always asking us, guys, what are you doing? Sometimes you're all upstairs and Indai is downstairs. And I will hear always her saying, guys, what are you doing there? This is... The delegation asking the two and a half tribes, what in the heck are you doing? Why did you build an altar? Didn't you know that this is rebellion and that we will incur wrath from God? In fact, they raised uh, the experience of Achan. You remember Achan in the book of Joshua, chapter 5? Before, so they attacked a city called Jericho. 
but there's one guy by the name of Achan who stole something from God. And the next time they attacked the city, Ai, they lost. And God's wrath fell upon them. And so Phinehas told them, didn't you know that because of one man, his whole family were stoned to death? It's only him who sinned, and yet the whole family suffered. Didn't you know that if you do that, the whole nation of Israel might fall under God's wrath? So they were very afraid. So let me give you this. This is a, a lesson in faith. There's really no personal and private sin. You may say, it's my responsibility, it's my sin, but it, there's really no personal and private sin. Because your sin, your private and personal sin, may affect us because we are part of one family. Don't look at your husband now. We are all part of one family. Apostle Paul was very clear on this. In fact, he used the analogy of a body. He said, we are part of one body. You are different members of one body. I may be an eye, you may be a toe, you may be a hand or something. But we are part of this one body. And if one body has a problem, every part of the body feels it. There's nothing as painful as hell as a toothache. Have anyone has a toothache before? I mean, it's just one insignificant part of my body. It's tough, and yet, when it aches, I can feel it. I told you last time, uh, last Sunday, that I had leg cramps while sleeping. I mean, it's just one part of the body, but when you are having leg cramps, you can feel it from the whole body. I mean, for some, maybe not cramps, maybe gout or arthritis or something else, migraine. But there's one part of the body, we can all feel it. What I'm saying is that we cannot say that my sin is my own, my private sin. See, when you make a mistake, we all feel it because we are in the same boat. We are in the same family. And Apostle Paul was very clear on this. What the nine and a half tribes are saying through Phineas is that even though the two and a half tribes have made a mistake, the whole nation of Israel is at peril. They're at stake. Now, very interestingly, there's also another guy, a prophet, whom God said, go to Nineveh. I want you to go to Nineveh and preach by the name of Jonah. Jonah's very familiar. But Jonah hated the Assyrians, so he went the other way around. What he did? He went the other way around. He boarded the boat and went to the bottom of the boat. And when the boat was in the middle of the sea, came the storm. See, he's not the only one at peril. The whole passengers of the boat are in peril. We cannot say it's my own responsibility, it's my personal sin. We are all part of this one. So the two and a half tribes responded to the allegation. Did they breach the faith? They said, no, verse 24. But we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of God. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. What they're saying is that because they are outside the promised land, there might come a time when the people, the nine and a half tribes, might forget them. And might actually tell them, you're not part of the family anymore. Because you stayed outside the promised land. So they were afraid. So what they did is to build an altar to act as a memorial, as a remembrance, as a connection to them. 
But you see, again, the reason why there was a boundary is that so that God can demarcate what is his and what is not his. What's very interesting here is from the book of Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, God is always repeatedly saying that the land that he's giving to the Israelites is the land that he will dwell. That means outside of the promised land, he doesn't dwell. It's as easy as that. So the two and a half tribes are fearful. They might forget about us. It's, it's never a mistake for God to design. <clears throat> Let me tell you this. God is always a God who designs, who plans. And there's a reason why there's a boundary to that land. God has a very specific design. Was it, was it ever a mistake to put one man and one woman in the Garden of Eden? I don't think so. Because if the goal is to secure, God would probably have put two men, not one woman and one woman and man. If, if the goal is to redesign the, the garden, interior design, maybe God would have put two women, not one and woman. But there's a reason why God put one man and woman. There's no accident in this life. God placed things by design. There's a reason why our body is built like this. It's always by design. It's never a mistake to create man and woman on the last day, sixth day. It's never a mistake for God to do something or his decisions to do something. See, the Jordan River was placed there for a reason. Undeniably, it's a geographical boundary and even though these two and a half tribes of Manasseh are thinking, it's not entirely wrong, but because of the boundary, it's not entirely right either. And their concern is on point. So, they said in verse 28, if this should be said of us to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. What they're saying is that this altar will not be used to offer sacrifices. We will just use it as a witness, as a monument for connection purposes. Well, the problem is that centuries later, Jeroboam would take this decision to another level and actually from this build altars to worship other gods in Israel. We can only take this idea further enough. Let me, let me make an appeal to my younger brothers and sisters. I know that love life is important, but please don't settle for less. The two and a half tribes of Manasseh settled for less. They were outside. This is just uh, an advice. Find a person who loves God the most. Amen. Find the... Find the person who loves you and respects you enough to wait until you get married before you cross the sexual boundary. Or please find also a person who knows how to cook. It can go a long way. Now to those of you who are already married and have children, one day your children will be on their own. Our job is to prepare them for any decision that they will make. I always tell my son, J-Mac, because sometimes he demands, because uh, sometimes he demands that we don't make him happy. So I'd always say, my job is not to make you happy. My job is to make you ready 
so that when you get out of the house, you can make better decisions. That's my job as your parent. It's not to entertain you, but to make you ready. See, when our kids grow up, sometimes when they're on their own, they forget a lot of things that we taught them. And, and, and many times, I, I've seen this in the history of churches. They don't go to church anymore. They don't do the things that they did before. They even forget about their faith. And no matter how, how much we admonish them to not forget, they are on their own. They have their own will. As parents, this is what we can do. As parents, don't give up. They have to own up to their decisions and there will be seasons in life, in their seasons in life, that they will do what they want to do and there's nothing we can do about it. But as long as there are connections between us and them, they will not forget. They may be undergoing a season where they don't want to come back, but they will come back because of connections. This is the idea of Reuben, God, and Manasseh and the other nine tribes of Israel. See, they may be apart, separated because of the border, but there's a connection that's connecting them. So my admonition to parents is that please don't give up. Be patient with them. Poor choices don't mean they cannot come back. Hold on to whatever connections you have with them. If you have to pray, pray for them. If you have to admonish them, admonish them in all gentleness. And it goes the same way with our other family members and our friends. It may, be, it may not be a time to share the gospel to them because their ears are closed. We have to wait for a season where they are right. You see, no matter how avocados in the tree look so yummy, but if they're not ripe, you cannot eat them. Correct? You have to wait for the season where people will be open. When they hear, they will accept. This is how we show their, our love for them. Now, this is a very important principle at the very end of the story in verse 32. It says, Then Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs, Return from the people of Reuben, people of God, in the land of Gilead, in the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back the word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. Now, very interesting. Because of that, they were able to, to repair the rift. Let me skip that to verse 24. And the people of Reuben and the people of God called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Very interesting, this uh, ending. Now, one of the main highlights in the life of Jesus was his long prayer in the book of John. It's only in the book of John that after the Lord's Supper, Jesus did a very long prayer. In chapter 17, one of the most intimate and controversial prayer he did. In his prayer, he said, Father, I have guarded all that you have given me, and I lost no one except one. We know who? Judas. He knew that that night he will be arrested, and then the following day he will be crucified. He could have asked a million things for God to do to his disciples, and yet he only asked one. One. 
John chapter 17, verse 15. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. His main concern is not the physical safety of the disciples. In fact, Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. So he's not one bit worried about the physical security of his disciples. The disciples knew what they signed up for. He didn't ask for a reasonable amount of financial security so that when he goes up to heaven, his disciples can retire comfortably. He didn't ask that. He didn't even ask for power or political favors so that these disciples will be on top of the power so that it can influence the world. He could have asked a million things, but he only asked for one thing, that they be kept from the evil one. What does it mean? That they be kept from falling, from apostasy, from backsliding, from growing cold in faith, from temptations that will probably wreck their faith. He asked his father that they may be kept from the evil one. Because to Jesus, faith has a premium. Faith is the most important thing. Faith is the connection we have with Jesus. Listen here. I understand. God is concerned with our health. God is concerned with our livelihood, our finances, our relationships. But there's one thing that God is most concerned of. That is your faith. Because that is your connection with God. And there's nothing more precious than keeping us afloat in His grace, trusting Him even though sometimes we get disappointed, trusting Him even though we're still waiting for God's promise, trusting Him even though sometimes we feel that God doesn't give us favor. We call this trust. See, at the end of the day, the Bible said that God allows us to undergo series of tests so that our faith can grow. Without this, we will remain immature. And this is not the will of God. The will of God is very clear in the book of Ephesians. The will of God is to make us mature to the perfection in the level of Christ-likeness. You're supposed to be Christ-like every day, more and more. And how do you do that? Through your faith. Now, what's interesting here is that God prayed for His disciples. Did God also pray for us? Did Jesus also pray for us? Listen to John chapter 17, verse 20. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ also prayed for you and I. Not just for his disciples, because he knew time will come that we will grow cold in faith. That time will come that we might not find it beneficial to grow in faith. That we will be focused on somewhere else. Jesus prayed for you and I as well. He said that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's a parting idea. See, you and I are part of this local church. And without the local church, we will not grow in faith. We cannot exercise our gifts. The church is designed to be a family so that when you go through difficult times, you are not alone experiencing it. We are going through the difficult times with you. 
what you feel is also what we feel, maybe in different degrees of intensity, but nevertheless, we feel it because we are part of this family. You see, the two and a half tribes are part of one nation, even though they live outside of the promised land. Now, sometimes, there are Jordan rivers between us and the other church family members that act like a barrier. Now, I know, I understand that this church is, you know, rather accumulated years, 28 years. And there are members of the church who have transferred to other church, other members of the church who are not coming in here anymore for whatever reason. And we might fall into temptation by thinking that they're not part of this family anymore. See, the two and a half tribes are the same. They're thinking, if we stay outside, the nine and a half tribes will think that we are not part of the family anymore. Do not think like that. They may be undergoing something. They may be undergoing a season in life. But it doesn't mean that they're cut off from the grace of God, just like we do. Would you say amen to that? Our job as family members is not to cut the connection. It's to check on that connection and hold on to that because that is our connection to the family. And when our time, when our seasons come and it's replaced and we are in that season where we say, I don't feel like going to church today. It's not really that we are cut off from the family. It's just that we are undergoing seasons in life. The book of Ecclesiastes is very clear that there are seasons for everything. I pray that we will not grow cold. I pray that we will not stop the assembly. I pray that we will continue, but I understand that sometimes because of our immaturity, sometimes we get tired, sometimes we get lazy. But listen, you're part of the family. Keep that connection alive. If there's a way you can text that long-lost brother or sister that you have not seen for a long time, then text and reach out. We have connection. We are family. Would you say amen to that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for reminding us once again. Though Joshua 22 is not as dramatic as other chapters, but I pray that you will, as you have brought this lesson today, I pray that you will help our hearts and our minds Keep this idea afresh that we are part of this family and that there are people who may not be with us today are still part of this family. I pray that you will allow us to keep the connections alive. Keep, allow us to keep the passion alive as well. Father, we pray that you will keep us from the evil one just like how Jesus prayed for his disciples. Just like how you prayed for those who will believe after them. As you, Father, keep us from the evil one, I pray that you will keep our faith alive in you. We may undergo series of tests, and sometimes we might fail, but I pray, Father, that like a marathon, I pray that you will allow us to finish. We may finish last, but it doesn't matter. We want to finish with you. We want to finish the race that you have set before us. Keep us, Father, in Jesus' name.